Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Today's episode is sponsored by Books of Discovery, and here's a message from their founder, Andrew Beale. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional bodywork. Check out our kinesiology, pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support the thinking practitioner and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the booksofdiscovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. Thanks to Andrew Beal and Books of Discovery for their support, and be sure to check out their great offer. Hey, Whitney, how's it going? Going well today. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Been traveling a bunch and at home now, and that's always pleasant. Yeah, how were your trips? Really fun. Really fun. It Good. was that triple whammy at Google, and we stayed busy, but uh, it was just a whole lot of fun to be seeing what they're up to and to be going from coast to coast and to get the juxtaposition of the different uh, subcultures that we have in this yeah. big country we're in. And tell me about, uh, about that briefly. The triple whammy, that was three cities. It was New York, Mountain View, and Seattle. Seattle is that mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. So you were at the... The, uh, the Google headquarters or Google locations at each one of those major cities then, is that right? That's right, working with yeah. their in-house therapists and yeah. uh, pretty high level of skill, pretty high level of motivation. And of course, yeah. they work in a unique environment. So yeah. those were all really fun things to visit and be a part of. Yeah, it is It is really fascinating to see um, the way that they're doing things within the company with, with the services that they offer there. And I think it's a great example of how this can be used in so many different ways there. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's really cool. Uh, they were remembering you fondly. I know you went and spent some time there, and uh, you made an impression and left them some lasting things, too. So that was fun to follow in your footsteps. Yeah, all right. Good, good. So... Uh, What's well, new? good. Well, we got um, What's new? some what interesting do you wanna, things. You want to jump into our topic? Where you, what do you want to? Where you yeah, want to go? Yeah, I think I think let's uh, let's hop into what we're doing today. And I think we had on our our topic today is is stretching. If I'm thinking correctly, is that right? That's right. Stretching. Yeah. Uh, you had that proposal. Uh, I remember it started when you read uh, Jules Mitchell's book, and we'll talk about that. But then I think it expanded out from there. So maybe you could give us a little context. Why why would stretching be interesting? to manual therapists and massage and body workers, and why did you want to discuss it here? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I want to give just a quick shout out. A lot of my uh, recent interest in some of these uh, topics have come about after I had uh, read Jules Mitchell's recent book called Yoga Biomechanics, which I really strongly advocate everybody take a look at. It's, um, you know, especially for those who are in the manual therapy world, it's not just about yoga, but about uh, things that are pertinent to anybody who's involved in these types of um, manual therapy approaches like what we're doing. But her book is a compendium of a lot of the recent research on stretching, and um, it helps dispel a lot of myths and misperceptions about stretching. And that's one of the things that really caught my attention a great deal is that there do seem to be a fair number of kind of misperceptions and misunderstandings about stretching. So that's one of the things that I thought we might uh, talk about a little bit today because I hear a lot of those things 
bandied about in our profession uh, or in, you know, in lots of people who are doing all types of manual therapy approaches um, quite a bit. So um, I thought there'd be some interesting things for us to, to dive into a little bit there. You bet. I mean, that's so, yeah, I also really enjoyed her book, like two thumbs up on that one. Myths and misperceptions. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we could, uh, that's almost tempting to dive into right there, but I'm wondering if we should step back a little bit and, well, is there another bigger picture question that's raised for you? Is it just myths and misperception or is there another Well, no, I think think you're right. We should uh, really, to get into this, we want to talk about some of the other fundamental facets of stretching that I think are sometimes either taken for granted or maybe not even recognized thoroughly. And, And look at some of those things first, and that's how I'll probably we'll get into some of these sort of myths and misperceptions. But one of the things that, that comes to mind for me in, in looking at this this topic of stretching is there, when we try to think about what actually happens when we are stretching, and, and you know, lots of us give our clients suggestions about, hey, you should do these stretches, or we hear people talking about, like, you should uh, stretch this as part of your rehab or something like that. So it is something that is advocated a, quite a lot by people who are in our field. And I think sometimes it's advocated without a really good uh, physiological understanding of what happens to tissues in the process of stretching. And and that whole understanding is really evolving a great deal. I I don't think we really have a definitive understanding yet of exactly what happens in many instances here. So one of the things that, that I sort of zero in on is uh, when I think about stretching, there really seems to be two key elements of a stretching procedure. One of those is the connective tissue element, meaning what happens to the the myofascia and the connective tissues of, and again, we're speaking about stretching mostly in terms of musculotendinous units here. When we talk about stretching, there's something happening to the connective tissues that are absorbing the tensile load of the pulling process from a stretching procedure. Okay, so there when is you're also, saying like when, let me see if I follow so far. So you're saying when we stretch, either when I stretch myself or when I stretch my client, we're mechanically loading the tissues, the musculoskeletal yeah. unit you said. Okay. Yeah. And also, you know, in thinking biomechanically, there's something that, that some people don't really think about it as well, which is that... Um, in muscle contraction, tendons are getting loaded with tensile load. They're getting pulled just the same way they are during a stretching procedure, but obviously with a lot more force during a muscle contraction. So Uh during stretching procedures, muscle and tendon both get a tensile load, but during muscle contractions, whether they're isometric, eccentric, or um, uh, concentric contractions, did I say concentric? Yeah. Three of those, concentric, eccentric, and isometric. Regardless of the type of muscle contraction, the tendon is getting a tensile or pulling load in all of those instances. So when we talk about stretching, we're usually talking about what happens to the muscle tissue or the myofascial tissue. So yeah, there's something happening to the connective tissue elements, all of those um, layers of fascial tissue that surround individual muscle fibers, the bundles, and the whole muscle itself they're getting a tensile load. So that is sort of the connective tissue element. Okay. And then there is a neurological element to that, which Mm -hmm. is that, you know, the muscles, when they get a stimulus to contract, there is the, you know, the uh, overlapping of the actin and myosin fibrils in there that causes the muscle contraction process to occur. And neurologically, when we are stretching in many instances, at least this is the theory that we are 
decreasing the neurological resistance to that muscle being able to, um, I, I hesitate to say the word elongate because we're going to get into that a little bit there, about what actually do muscles truly elongate, because uh, that's, that's another big question. So let's just say neuro- neurologically there's some other things going on in a stretching procedure that makes that muscle be able to have a greater range of motion. Okay, so is is your interest in the debate about is it neurological or is it tissue? Well, you know, that's something that I, in reading a lot of this uh, recent research and some of the things that uh, Jules Mitchell had put in her book, that, uh, was highlighting that there seemed to be these two sort of competing theories, huh. one being sort of a mechanical theory that, yes, we are stretching and elongating tissues when we do stretching, and the other being one predominantly a sensory or neurological theory, saying the, the majority of this is really happening from neurological responses to the procedure that we're doing that's decreasing the neurological activity in there. So are we and stretching, there is, course, the, some, the question then, are we stretching fascia, myofascia, or are we stretching our brain and our sensate sensate thresholds, those kinds of things. Exactly. And there, you know, there is some evidence for both of those things being present. And I think the question sometimes comes up, you know, how much of which one of these is really relevant and pertinent. Um, But there's some interesting things that that make you really ponder and wonder about this a lot. Like, you know, the idea is that, um, you know, when we think of people having, you know, really tight muscles that just don't seem to be able to fully, you know, I'm going to say the word lengthen, but it's not truly lengthening the muscle tissue, but they don't seem to be able to allow full range of motion. And you might think, well, this person's incredibly tight because their fascial tissues are bound down and their connective tissues are bound down. We can't elongate them. But if that person goes in for a surgical procedure under anesthesia, now all of a sudden they've got complete free range of motion. So maybe that limitation is not fully as much on binding down of connective tissues as we might have thought. It might be a much more neurological component. The, but the, anas- again, there's- the anesthesia thing is really interesting. You're, you're yeah. giving the example of when someone is under anesthesia, their range of motion often increases quite a bit, even in situations yeah. where there is a painful limitation or a, a barrier that's not painful. Often that changes under anesthesia, which points to the nervous yeah. system. Yeah, I just uh, so, ne- next week I'm or next week next episode I'm talking to Robert Schleip and he talks about some of his early research there. Yeah, and I'm curious to hear where we go with that yes. because and, and I'm curious to hear more about your perspective too. Back sort of onto the connective tissue element because that's something that I know is emphasized a good bit more in the structural integration community of focusing on the. Um, uh, viscoelastic nature of connective tissue and what happens when you apply those forces to that tissue because clearly there are studies that do indicate an increased degree of of pliability of some of those connective tissue elements when a tensile load is applied to them. Yes. And then we're, we'll try to keep it uh, concise because there's so much to say about this. And we're also going to uh, grounded in what we would actually do in practice for sure toward the end of the episode, if not all the way along. Yeah, yeah. So, what I mean, um, what's your kind of take on on those two um, aspects, the connective tissue element and the, the neurological element? Do you sort of sense one being more pertinent, or do you kind of view what you're doing when you look at uh, you know, therapeutic uh, stretching procedures there? You're going right for the juggler. You're like, <laughs> it's going right for, at least it's the hot spot. That yeah. is the hot spot in our discussions these days. Is it tissue yeah. or is it uh, the nervous system? And of course, it's not an or. Yeah. And it's also not quite both. 
that's the easy answer. We can say, yeah, of course there are tissue effects. Although some people say there aren't, there probably is decent evidence that at least in some cases there is. And it's not just neurological effects. They seem to be very significant also, and there's good evidence for those as well. But there's times when, I mean, the puzzle I have for myself, and the reason I got interested in your question was, uh, when, as a practitioner, do I think about the tissue, and when do I think about the nervous system? When do I think about sensation, and when do I think about the stuff we're made out of? Mm -hmm. Am I, you know, when am I, am I kind of like technician, uh, mechanic role, and when am I in my facilitator, psychologist, listener kind of role, and when do I shift those hats back and forth? Yeah. my work. And what do we know? Actually, what do we know and what can we say about stretching that uh, is, is accurate? And what are the debates where we're not quite sure yet? Yeah. And for me, this is one of those places where, and, and again, you know, you and I both kind of come back to our, our home bases often of, and look at, and, you know, look at things through a particular lens of the, our, our backgrounds and training and interest in that kind of thing. And for me, a lot of this goes back to the the idea of the importance of assessment in evaluating what do I really think is the primary nature of this kind of problem because there are clearly types of problems where there is limited range of motion. You take something like adhesive capsulitis. Ah. When there is a true um, myofascial uh, adhesion within the capsule, uh, it may have some neurological components to it, but even under anesthesia, that capsular limitation to range is still present there. And that's a pretty clear mechanical uh, viscoelastic limitation in the capability of range of motion in that joint. Viscoelastic so or, where, even, or even... What's that? Viscoelastic or even collagenous, perhaps. Per, yes. You know, so it could right. go even, even into more denser proteins. Yes. And so that seems like an intervention where the me mechanical tensile loading of that tissue to try to encourage greater... Um, extensibility would be of significant benefit. Um, that being different from something where there seems to be a, a limitation in range of motion that's primarily neuromuscular in, it, in its origin. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, the, again, the anesthesia thing is really interesting because it turns out different types of anesthesia affect different joints differently, mm -hmm. like some, depending on what they do in the nervous system. So there's a way to yeah. dial that down. And then different joints in the body respond really differently too, like the shoulder you mentioned, that changes in most cases, quite a bit under anesthesia, the ankle changes very little. Mm -hmm. So there's places in the body, too, where structure seems to be the dominant limiter, and then the nervous system or muscular control seems to be the, the limiter. Yeah. And then yeah. yeah, and then if we understand that those mechanisms a little more and tease them apart, how does that inform what we do with our, our hands and our clients? And yeah. Our words, all that. And some other things that are, you know, sort of interesting to look at in this perspective having to do with the way in which we can see, you know, oftentimes the benefits of stretching in a lot of the research studies that look at this are are evaluated based on increases in range of motion at a joint. Mm. And so they'll say, yeah, this stretching procedure either seemed to be effective or not effective because we got some improvement in range of motion at the joint. But the other thing that becomes a, a big sort of um, question that comes up with that is like, there's all kinds of things that can see those same increases in range of motion at a joint, like breathing exercises, mm -hmm. um, you know, work on a contralateral limb, mm -hmm. uh, work on other parts of the body, and also can produce 
uh, changes in range of motion at a particular joint. So that that is something that seems to really reinforce the idea that maybe there's a lot more to this than just um, you know pulling on a tissue and increasing it, trying to increase its length. But there's a, that kind of lends a lot of credence to the whole neurological principle idea. Yeah, and very I really very few people are saying it's one or the other. Yeah. Most of us agree it's both. And so then, like I said, it's, it's, then it's the next step. Okay, so when do we think about each one? What's going on in each case? How do we use both of those uh, factors there? Yeah. So is it, is it time to dive into that? How does, yeah, the, how does the tissue change, do you think, in stretching? What does that mean? Yeah. So my understanding about this, and again, this may be, you know, have some degree of, of uncertainty around it in terms of what, what it seems to be true, but the, the things that I have looked at around this seem to indicate that um, the, the plastic, we're going to call them plastic changes to connective tissue, meaning changes that you can make to a tissue because of an imposed load that have a, a duration associated with them. It, it seems like when we do things like um, warm up myofascial tissues, do certain types of interventions with them, we can improve the connective tissue pliability, but it seems to be somewhat time dependent, meaning it doesn't necessarily last for a long period of time, just that alone. And so the idea that we'll, we'll necessarily make an intervention to stretch somebody, let's say in a clinic treatment, and that's going to alleviate their problem may or may not be true because they may go back to the same uh, degree of, of restricted motion that they had if they don't keep that area um, pliable, warm, moving, and all those other kind of things that allow those uh, plastic changes to occur to the connective tissue element itself. So this kind of gets back to just that element alone. So um, I think we are ideally trying to look at um, how do we enhance the the capability of all of these things to to work together uh, in beneficial methods? Okay, so you're saying it's what we've been saying for a while that the tissue itself probably isn't as plastic as we imagined it. Plastic meaning changes permanently, or at least in a longer duration sense, after we do an intervention. That there is short term change, and then the question is. Um, how, you know, there, you mentioned some things people can do to make those changes persist or to integrate those changes. There's debate there about whether the persistence is actually learning or a, actual tissue change too. Yeah. The argument that actually the best hope we have for lasting change is a neurological learning of new movement patterns and learning to move anyway, as yeah. opposed to trying to remold someone like clay and expect that to persist. Yeah. And so, you know, some of the other questions that come up, I think, uh, in debate clinically a great deal, and uh, we may want to, we'll touch base on this maybe a little bit more in detail after our, our halftime sponsor message here in just a moment. I'd like to look at this issue, too, because we hear this a lot of, what's the ideal type of stretching? Like, there's a lot of debate about, should it be, you know, 20 seconds? Should it be two seconds? Should it be three minutes? You know, there's a lot of debate in some of the research literature about how long to hold a stretch for the most beneficial therapeutic outcomes there. So mm -hmm. maybe we'll dive into look at that um, in, a, in a little bit here too, and, and some other aspects of what happens during some of these different stretching um, techniques or procedures that, that people are commonly using. Okay. So, uh, we mentioned tissue change. How do we get more? Uh, how do we get neuro? How does neurological change happen? How is that a factor? 
Well, so the at least the theoretical idea is that what we're doing is um, increasing the tissue's tolerance to, or or maybe it's better spoken of as as decreasing the tissue's resistance to elongation. Okay, so you're still talking so, about tissue now. We're not talking about neurology. Well, in terms of the neurolo, let's say a, a muscle. Let's take a muscle as an example. What we're trying to do with the neurological aspects of stretching is a muscle has a certain resistance to lengthening. And this is what happens with when the Golgi tendon organs set off the stretch reflex because it's responding to whether or not that muscle is lengthening too rapidly, which would be an indication like it's going to potentially tear and get damaged if it, if it lengthens too fast and keeps going. Or if it's pulled too far, like you keep stretching it, stretching it, stretching it, stretching it, at a certain point the muscle says, hey, you keep doing this and this is going to damage this tissue. So we have a resistance, a neuromuscular resistance to that process, which kicks off a, a reactive muscle contraction. That's one of the major roles of those protective proprioceptive cells. So a lot of the ideas, what, happen, what happens neurologically is, we're sort of changing the way that neurological protective response is reporting or mediating our ability to move a muscle through a range of motion without it sensing danger or restriction to it. Does that seem to make sense? It does, and I don't want to get too caught up in the semantics at all. You made that point in your notes that you sent earlier over. It's like, you know, some of this is semantic, but it's it's changing our narrative where we're thinking, one, the actual tissue uh, qualities on, say, a histological level or even down to the cells and fibroblasts and uh, fluids, what they're doing. You've zoomed out a bit and you're talking about the muscle sensing and the muscle protecting, but I think you mean the brain is sensing and the brain is protecting. Yes. So the brain you know, interpreting all of this mass of sensory information that's coming into it from the proprioceptors. So yes, in terms of semantic accuracy, yeah, definitely. All right. So yeah. in, one, in one sense, there's tissue effects down at the cell and histological level. On the other sense, there's neurological control of movement and protection that happens through the nervous system, which involves the brain and spinal cord and reflexes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, there, and the question then, when does stretching change histological factors or tissue changes? When does it change our neurological factors, and how do we leverage both of those? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take a break here for our halftime sponsor in a moment, but I just want to put this little quick plug in before we do that. Of, I heard a great quote from um, a, a colleague. This was from uh, my colleague and friend, Benny Vaughn, who said this to me many years ago uh, when we were talking about what is the best type of stretching for somebody to do to get benefit. And he said, the best type of stretching for somebody to do is what they're going to do. Uh -huh. And so, you know, a lot of it may kind of eventually come back to that. Like, what are they actually going to do? Some people don't like long static stretching because it's boring and it's not interesting. They like to do, you know, ballistic movement-oriented stretching. Some people like the meditative, quiet, like yoga type of long holding posture. But the point is, what are you going to do that's really going to be a, a repeated intervention that's going to have a benefit for you? So the doing it seems to be the most significant factor. Yeah, I think uh, when it all comes down at the end of the day, that's probably where, it, where, where the rubber hits the road finally. All right. Should we do our halftime Let's spot? do. Yeah. That is me again. Yeah. All right. Today it's Handspring Publishing. When I was uh, looking for a publisher for the book I wanted to write, I was lucky enough to have two offers, one from a huge international media company and the other from Handspring. 
a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people. And I'm really glad I chose them. I went with my gut and chose them as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to, the Advanced Mouth Fascial Technique series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. Yes, certainly Handspring has done a great job of expanding those offerings for the movement and manual therapy professions, and their author list reads like a who's who for many of the leading thinkers in our fields. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com, and that's where you can browse their outstanding catalog over there. And once you find any of the gems and the great books in there, you have to have like Till's book, which is over there. Uh, also, just put a shout out for Jules Mitchell's book that we announced or uh, made a reference to earlier today. That is published by Handspring as well. You can use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. So uh, thanks again for uh, Handspring for, for sponsoring our episode here. Yeah, we'll put that link in the name of her book in the show notes as well. Yeah, good. So, Till, I want to ask you a question about um, kind of going off on a slightly different direction here when we talk about stretching, because this is something else that um, she had mentioned in her book, and uh, it's a concept that we hear a great deal um, in the manual therapy worlds, and that's the idea of muscles being overstretched from let's say, a postural position. Like you have the, the classic upper thoracic sort of kyphotic position, forward rolled shoulders, mm -hmm. and people look at this in their sort of analysis and body reading position. They say, oh, that person has short and tight pecs, and they have weak and over-lengthened rhomboids. So mm -hmm. we need to work on those pecs, but don't stretch their rhomboids because they're already overstretched mm -hmm. and over-lengthened. Mm -hmm. um, what's your take on that perspective based on, on the ideas of stretching physiology? Uh, based on stretching physiology and based on stretch tolerance, based on both of those, and then based on my own questioning, it's not a model I use. To, uh -huh. uh, you know, the short story. It's an interesting model. There is some therapeutic usefulness in it as a narrative. Let's strengthen where it's long. Let's stretch where it's short. But I doubt, my own opinion, I doubt that those are literally, and or at least universally the case, that wherever we see a shape in the body, like say upper cross syndrome, a position or a shape, that we can assume the tissues are uh, either weak or, or uh, strong or overstretched or understretched. And often, you know, when you get in there and find you work on people, you realize, oh, this is supposed to be the tight zone. It doesn't feel tight to me. Mm-hmm. And we, yeah. we did, we went into that some with scoliosis too, where we predict to have tight tissue. If you go on the bowstring model of tissue stretching, it's often not. Yeah. And you, you put some great notes there in your, in your just kind of brainstorm before our... Uh, yeah, because the idea when we think about um, muscles, you know, oftentimes it's said, that, well, these muscles that are short and tight are over strong, and that's made the ones on the opposite side weak. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the points that I, you know, came across in discussions about this was that muscles don't gain strength by being in a shortened position for prolonged periods. Mm -hmm. They gain strength by being loaded, mm -hmm. and they're not necessarily loaded to a higher degree by being in that shortened position. Isn't that and, interesting? So that our, our basic premise that the body is bowed or bent or curved or hunched in a way because of a short, tight muscle depends on that muscle being loaded. And wait a minute, it's not being loaded, in, in, you're saying, in a lot of these cases. Yeah. Right. So the, the idea is that it may be shortened, but it doesn't necessarily mean those muscles are over strong and causing the opposing muscle to be 
weakened because, for example, just because a muscle is, um, and I'll, I'll use the word lengthened, even though it's not truly necessarily over lengthened, but because there's a greater apparent uh, holding length, let's say, to those muscles on the uh, upper thoracic region and the posterior part of the thoracic area, like the rhomboids or whatever in the forward shoulder, uh, forward rolled shoulder example. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing necessarily that, mean I'm doing that right now. I'm doing that yeah. right now on my computer as I'm talking to you. So I'm like yeah. hunched over a little bit and my back is being stretched and my front yeah. is being loaded? That's a question. That's a, like a yeah. bit of a sarcastic yeah. emoji on that question too. Sure, and, and that certainly doesn't mean that your back muscles are weak. I mean, because... Just because you have a muscle that's being you know, that is able to go through long periods of, of lengthened position does not necessarily mean it's weak. Because certainly, if that were true, then gymnasts and ballet dancers and everybody else with these very uh, significant ranges of motion would be weak, and they're not. <laughs> clearly. Now you asked how I think about it. So just briefly, like I said, I don't use that map. I I understand its value as a map, and I wouldn't object to other people using it if they find it useful. Because I believe in maps. Let's put it that yeah. way. But for myself, I'm thinking about, uh, let's say, uh, how aware am I? How much can I sense and how much can I find movement in those areas? Mm -hmm. As opposed to like the passive stretch stretchability or even actively trying to stretch them out. Yeah. Except, yeah. except the stretching perhaps. I, I probably tend, I think, in my interventions to think more about let's change the way the brain feel, uh, feels those places and so controls posture and things like that as opposed yeah. to remodeling the clay that we're made out of. And uh, that's a great point that you bring up there too because I think a lot of times a lot of the great benefit of what we're doing is sort of proprioceptive awareness and interoceptive awareness from an individual about like what is my how do I feel in my body to be able to change how I'm holding myself moving myself being in different positions that's what we're really trying to aim at is to sort of change their overall perception of how they feel so that makes them move differently and that really is at the core of what makes those changes long lasting as opposed to you know, we're going to go in and make an intervention and do something to them yes, uh, that way. You. That's right. Yeah. Well, we got, there's like four different things I could ask you about. Uh, Davis law, ballistic stretching, pendiculation, and post-isometric relaxation. Yeah. Which one of those you want to pick? We probably have to at least for one or two of those. Yeah. So let me tackle a couple of things that I wanted to mention about this and maybe go in a little bit of reverse order here. Okay. Um, because this, um, some of the stretching research that I had been reading really made me uh, sort of revisit some of the theoretical models that I had ascribed to for many years. And this kind of gets into our discussion of myths and misunderstandings that we talked about earlier as well. Yeah. And that's the whole idea of the, the post-isometric relaxation that's a big part of procedures such as muscle energy technique, PNF, or whatever you want to call it, facilitated stretching, going by lots of different names. But lots of people use this as a technique. Can you say, sorry, briefly, what that for people who don't do that or don't know what you mean by post-isometric? Yeah, Can you give absolutely. A quick example? So, yeah, going into that. So the idea is in many of these stretching procedures, you engage your client in a contraction, mm. hold that contraction, so it's a resisted contraction. So let's say you're trying to stretch somebody's posterior cervical neck uh, muscles. You'd have them attempt to push their head back against mm -hmm. a resistance using those muscles, 
hold it for a certain period of time, and again, the time frame is somewhat limited or dependent on whose theory you, abscri- you subscribe to. Okay. But then they relax that contraction, and then you stretch them by tilting their head forward in cervical flexion. I see. The idea behind this for years had been that there is a greater degree of uh, sort of... Uh, uh, rebound relaxation in that muscle immediately after the post isometric uh, after the isometric contraction yes and in that rebound period we stretch them and are able to get a better stretch on there and maybe the model is to probably oversimplify by doing an isometric we are increasing the passive range of the muscle so we can stretch its stuff more i wonder if yeah. that's the background paradigm there yeah. So the thing that always bothered me the most about this was I couldn't ever really find good supporting research for the idea of how long is that period of the post-isometric relaxation and why does that allow for a greater degree of stretch after that. And some more of the things that have come out in some of the stretching research recently about the this whole sensory model of stretching being what we're doing oftentimes when we're stretching tissues is we are decreasing the resist the muscle's resistance to elongation neurologically, kind of a neurological repatterning process. So what I think may have actually been happening in the post-isometric relaxation is, in fact, we're taking a muscle near its end range and engaging in a contraction and essentially telling the brain, hey, contractions at this point of the range are okay. So when we let go of that contraction and we try to move a little bit farther in that direction, the brain still perceives this as something that's relatively okay. Mm. And um, in uh, Jules's book, she talks a good bit about something called resistance stretching. Um, and I hadn't heard a whole lot about this, but it really began to make a great deal of sense to me. And I started working with it a lot and doing a bunch of this stuff and found it actually really effective. And that is essentially engaging in long, slow, eccentric actions of a muscle for the stretching procedure. So essentially, take that same example we used a moment ago about the cervical muscles. What you would do is instead, you know, put your hand back behind the client's head, tell them to offer you some resistance, and tell them to now slowly let that go as you tilt their head forward down into flexion, moving all the way through that range of motion in an eccentric action. And basically what you're doing is gradually telling the muscle and the brain, hey, this range is okay, hey, this range is okay, hey, this range is okay, because we still have a muscle contraction engaged to protect it, going all the way through to the far end of that range. And essentially we're telling the body all the way through there, this is really all okay, this is still okay all the way through there. And that type of stretching procedure seems to get some really good results. Um, and uh, it's also one of the things that I've seen incorporated. I've you know been doing this with um, active engagement massage techniques where we're massaging those muscles at the same time that we're doing that eccentric action with them. And I think that's one of the reasons that particular technique uh, seems to be so effective as well. Fascinating. I know there's been a lot of uh, tendon recovery research, inflammation research on eccentric exercise, exercises that take the muscle through that eccentric load. So you're describing a massage application of that. We're actually showing, you say we're showing the body it's okay to lengthen and to have control during that process. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like it. And you just mentioned something too that I wanted to get back to because you had uh, said that in some of your earlier notes when we were talking about this prior to the show. Yeah. Um, because I wasn't as clear about this and hadn't uh, seen as much about this. This is the the role of stretching and inflammation reduction because you had uh, called attention to some studies that had done that. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, there's mixed evidence, uh, evidence for both sides of the argument. The old argument says don't stretch if you injure it because it needs to heal. And there's pretty good, you know, both clinical experience and evidence is if you stretch too much, something that's hurt, it does take longer to heal. You keep the collagen from doing its job and reforming tissues in the acute phase. Jules Mitchell said don't, you know, acute injury for don't stretch an acute injury for four to six weeks because the collagen's not ready. And that sounds like a good uh, safe bet. Mm-hmm. Uh, or she says even one to two years for the strongest stretching on, say, you know, like an ankle injury. That often takes a year. A severe ankle injury took a year or two to really recover. And during that time the collagen is actually knitting and the argument is we don't want to be mechanically overstretching that as the knitting process is happening. Yeah. So let me pause there for just a moment and ask you this, because this kind of gets into what we talked about with Davis's law, which is Davis's law is a corollary to Wolf's law, which relates to bone tissue. And in Davis's law, it says essentially soft tissues will adapt in response to the loads applied to them. So how Mm. does that jive with what you're talking about? Like maybe is there any benefit in a healing stage of stretching or loading those tissues let's say, within safe parameters to increase that tissue's adaptability to, to managing loads. Well, that's what, uh, I mean, some of us are just kind of born lawbreakers. I don't know about Wolf's Law and Davis, but <laughs> it's it, it knows, those of us who are experimenting okay. with this, and including like Helen Langevin, her research says that, uh, you know, again, this is in rats and her uh, work. She did a project which was stretching the rats for 10 minutes twice daily and it reduced inflammatory markers and improved pro-resolution factors so it was a gentle stretch it was pretty i mean the, the rats were just holding on to something and she's gently lifting up by their tail and they gave signs of enjoying it things like that so she gave them a gentle stretch for like 10 minutes and then they had reduced inflammatory markers in their tissues and there seemed to be better tissue healing too along the way. Yeah. So a lot of it probably, and then to other studies, I'll put them in the show notes about uh, stronger wound repair and smaller scarring. If uh, modeled myofascial release, these were actually tendon culture studies, both of these, where they grew some tendons and then applied different kinds of stretch to the tendons after wounding it and watched to see how the tendon tissue itself healed. And in both these studies, the ones that had a mild stretch healed better, healed quicker, and healed stronger than the ones that had no stretch or the ones that had too much stretch. So a lot of it seems, I mean, the moral probably is, it's the Goldilocks effect. It's its dose dependent. Yeah. That we right. that some move, movement for sure is good, but even some stretching during the acute phase, in certain cases, I wouldn't say you now go stretch every ankle twist you get, but I'm going to say, you know, there's a, there's a role perhaps in acute injury for gentle, dosed, careful stretching in people that are otherwise healthy. Yeah. And, you know, another thing, too, that I'd come across in, in this s- stretching debate, and this was um, over the last several years, have been quite a, a good number of studies that have come out that have s- semi kind of debunked the common sense wisdom that had been this expounded for so long that 
you should be stretching before doing vigorous physical activity because stretching yeah. reduces injuries. No. And there's the at least the clinical research on this has not really supported that idea mm-hmm. really well. Um, again, I'm not necessarily going to say that's not true or we shouldn't, therefore we shouldn't do stretching because I, I certainly do think there's instances where that can still be helpful and we've got to be careful about interpreting yeah, a lot right. of the stuff that's done in the clinical lab experiment to how it applies to, to real life. But that is something that mm-hmm. comes up with um, at least our, our clinical applications with people to, to know that, um, you know, stretching from a therapeutic perspective certainly does have benefits, but there's not necessarily a, a guarantee that a person needs to be doing all kinds of stretching in order to, like, if you don't stretch, you're going to get injured. You know, we don't necessarily, we can't make that kind of blanket sort of statement in a lot of instances that's right and yet warming yeah. up that's that's pretty widely accepted in in sports conditioning field but there but also what's pretty widely accepted is there does need to be some sort of preparation or easing into things yeah and uh jules mitchell's statement that she's actually working on getting less flexible she wants more control and so uh-huh. she was doing poses and exercises that would help her actually strengthen along the whole range kind of like you were just describing in your pushing the head forward contraction. Yeah. She had a great story, too, about the uh, Toronto airport. Did you see that one in her book? I saw you make a reference to that, and I I, um, I didn't know the whole story. Can you elaborate what that was? Uh, the, again, the example she gave in her book was that the Toronto airport moved the baggage claim facility farther away from the international arrival gates so that people would walk farther before they were actually hoisting their heavy bags off of the belt because there was a Incident, big incidents of back injuries, and their incidents of back injuries went down after they did that. After people walked and, you could say, warmed up or at least changed their connective tissue properties or changed the way their brain was relating to that, they had fewer back injuries. Yeah. So I, th- I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, I'd like be curious to know, was there really a biomechanical analysis of, that led to this kind of decision? And, yes. You know, this is a perfect example of like, hey, we got to be a little bit careful about how we interpret this interpret because that. maybe yes. it's that there is more bathrooms between the plane and uh-huh. the luggage thing now. And they did, you know, <laughs> it's more about like taking time to to move around different ways and go to the bathroom or do whatever it is. It's you know, probably a sandwich before they probably you know, the perfume they, shops walking by the perfume good. shops. You get Get that big whiff of perfume that helps That's your right. back. Could be all kinds of things like that. So, um, yeah. Um, and there was something I was going to ask you about this right before we got on the Toronto airport thing, and now I lost my train of thought of where where we were going with that. But uh, back, it was something back to um, clinical applications of our stretching here. So, um, but we I'll could talk about now. We could. I mean, there's a couple more points there we could hit. You yeah. want to say anything about ballistic stretching? You want to say anything about that, or should we? Yeah. So just, you know. Yeah. Go just, for it. Again, it's kind of back to stretching methodologies. Ballistic stretching, which is that kind of rapid bouncing stretching procedure, really got a, a lot of bad rap in the you know couple decades ago. And some people have come back and said, well, maybe it's not so bad. Um, I think there's instances where it's not so beneficial because it does tend to stimulate some kinds of neurological activities. But the other thing is certain types of stretching, I really do believe, can take advantage of some of these either neurological or connective tissue facets a little bit more than others and then, again, might be more applicable 
in certain types of situations. For example, when you have something that seems to be a limited range of motion, a mm. uh, stretching methodology like what's used a lot in the active isolated stretching that Aaron Mattis um, popularized for many years, which is a very short duration of stretch repeated numerous times. Mm. To me, that um, stretching method, which has been shown to be very effective for lots of people who have utilized it, um, I think is getting its primary benefits because of the number of times it reinforces going into that range of motion um, and telling the brain and body, hey, this movement is okay, back off the stretch. Hey, this movement is okay, back off the stretch. Hey, this movement is okay. So you're holding that stretch for repeated bouts for short durations, but it's the number of reinforcements of telling the body this movement is okay that really is, is kind of beneficial. Mm. But again, it kind of gets into what really works well into the type of things that you're doing. Sometimes a long, slow-held stretch just feels great in the midst of a treatment process as well. That's great. I mean, and you could say there's a tissue explanation for that phenomenon, and there could be a learning explanation for that phenomenon. As we know, repetition helps learning stick better. Yes. So, so are yep. we are we easing into the tissue effects, or are we uh, embedding and facilitating those learning pathways that happen in the brain? Yeah, things. yeah. I think that's that's some of our big questions, and and I don't think there's absolute answers to a lot of this stuff. I think there's some um, instances where it's, hey, it's really helpful for us to think about what's the primary nature of what's going on here, and how might this stretching intervention be used most effectively along with what we're doing. That's kind of that's kind of the takeaway that I get from a lot of this stuff is is really think a little bit more physiologically about what's happening and what type of situations are unique to this particular client that would lead me to do one type of stretching versus another. And then as usual, my interest is in the narrative or the story that we work from, the explanations we have for why we do what we do and what we're even feeling for. Because I think yeah. that changes. If I think about myself as just stretch, stretching tissue, I'm going to interact with people in one way. I'm going to do my work in another way. If I think about it as as the other extreme, I thought about just learning and just nervous system, it might be a different way. So when can I mix narratives? When can I use both perspectives? When can I go back and forth according to what's presented to me and what the client wants and needs? Yeah. And so I thought of what I was going to mention a moment ago, too. And this is sort of going off on what you said there, too, is what are the unique specialized needs of this individual client. So, for example, uh, a, a great example of that is looking at the athletic world. You know, if you make a blanket statement about everybody should be able, if they want to be really healthy and athletic and vigorous, they should be able to touch their toes and have this degree of extensibility of their muscles. There's a very different degree of mechanical requirement of what a defensive lineman needs to be able to do and a world-class gymnast in terms of flexibility. Um, that defensive lineman may not want to have the same degree of extreme pliability of all their soft tissues in their extremities because they need greater stability for the activities of what they're doing. Same might be true in people in certain types of occupations. Well, yeah, where do you um, think like body workers fall in that continuum? Are they more like defensive linemen or more like gymnasts? I think it depends on your style of body work. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. There yeah. you go. Right. And who we're working with and what we're doing there. So, again, uh, you know, that's why you want to become the thinking practitioner. That's why you want to be, you know, thinking about who you're working with and don't apply the, apply the recipes and routines to everybody one single way only. So Lovely. Is there anything you want to say about how you use this information? You've said a bunch of stuff already. 
Anything else you want to add about using this information in a session with a client? And then I'll give you my thoughts too. Yeah, I would just wrap up by saying, you know, from uh, the the key takeaways here being think about mainly that the, the aspect that these stretching procedures do have these two major components, a connective tissue component and a neurological component. And there are instances when we want to be thinking about those two things interacting with each other significantly. Um, and also, you know, kind of back to what you were saying about the narratives and the way we talk with our clients and the way we discuss things with our clients. Keep in mind, because everybody is unique and an individual, um, to stay away from some of that, um, what we refer to as uh, nociboic language, like, oh my God, your traps are so tight, you know, there's no wonder your shoulders and your neck hurts and that kind of stuff. Um, those kinds of things we can try to encourage tissue elasticity and pliability, but also be really conscious and, and aware of the way in which we talk about the things that we feel and perceive in terms of, you know, range of motion or movement capabilities or pliability of tissue in there, because um, sometimes people don't need to have um, the greatest gymnast flexibility in the world, and they're just fine, mm. you know, there. Mm. So just, you know, be conscious of how you're doing that with each individual. Mm-hmm. Those are good. Shall I shall I give you my like things yeah, I think about? Tell me, tell me what you uh, think. I I think it's reminders for myself, and then when in a in a in a training situation, reminders from the students. But I think it's really that I I try not to assume that length, tissue length, or or range of motion length, or length of a particular structure is the only or the main goal of my work. That's you know historically that's been a, a big focus in some styles of. Uh, manual therapy, and we're pretty good at getting length uh, changes, whether that's tissue or brain stretch tolerance or histology. Who knows? Often both. But yeah. it, strategically, I don't want to assume that's my only or main goal. That's not always the most helpful one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I make my clients' sensation primary. I want to know what they're feeling and what it feels like to them and how it is for them. I keep their attention on that too as I work. Yeah. Along with what I find in my own palpation and movement. Uh, interactions as well with them. Yeah, great. So, so I am constantly thinking about tolerance, the uh, their ability to be comfortable and safe at different places in the joints range, as well as any plastic remodeling of the tissues. And yeah. uh, low amplitude, long duration. Jules Mitchell makes that. It's like applying things at a low level of stretch say or low level of force but for longer durations also seems to make a big difference for the actual for the certainly the tissue level effects but then for the brain too the brain can adapt to those low amplitude things better it doesn't trigger the protective responses and perhaps the long duration actually gets us accustomed to those sensations as well yeah 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 i like that the last one i got there oh last one uh careful dosing after acute injuries I don't want to be uh, thinking, you know, it's always stretch or never stretch. I want to be very, I want to be good at dosing, be good at watching the feedback and doing experiments so I know how much of a particular technique and how long to apply enough frequently to apply it given my client's uh, circumstances and situation. Yeah. Yeah, very good suggestions, great suggestions there. So, well, um, again, we could probably um, wrap on this for quite a bit longer, lots mm. of other things that we'll dive into, and, and uh, likelihood is a reason for us to revisit this topic uh, a little bit farther down the road as well. But um, 
we'll cap that for our discussion here today. So um, I will say uh, our big thank you to, I enjoyed the discussion here on stretching. So hopefully that was Likewise. helpful for everybody else. Yes. Big thank you to our sponsors for this particular episode and reminder that you can stop by our site for specific show notes, CE credit updates and other extras that are over there. That is at the thinkingpractitioner.com. Um, and you can also find out more information about uh, Till and the things that you're doing there. Till, where can people learn to uh, more about what you're doing there? Advanced-trainings.com. The show notes are there as well and things about what we do. How about yours, Whitney? I know the show notes are on your site too. Also over there, yeah, you can find out about uh, courses, uh, other types of things that we have going on at the academyofclinicalmassage.com. Or social and- media. Yep, social media stuff uh, under my name or also Academy of Clinical Massage. And you're over on social where? Uh, this is my name, Till Luca, yep. at Till Luca, wherever you are, you'll find me there. Yeah, sounds great. And reminder, too, if you've got questions or input or anything that you want to send over to us, you can email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com. And if you will, also please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to your podcast. It really does help everyone else uh, be able to find us over there. So we certainly do appreciate that. So um, big thank you. Also, shout out to all of our listeners and the people who've supported the podcast so far. We really uh, hope this uh, discussion gives you some interesting things to ponder about in your own practice. Fun doing this with, with you, Whitney. Thank you. Sounds good. And we'll see you all again in two weeks. <laughs>